you've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Hey team, what's going on? I really hope you had an incredible Christmas day. Ate yourself silly and had plenty of laughs. For this episode, being 105, I asked Brendan Poots onto the podcast. Brendan is the founder of a sports betting hedge fund, the Prihoma Group. The main sports which Prihoma bet on include football, as in soccer, cricket, golf, and also horse racing and tennis. Prihoma set up shop in Melbourne, Australia in 2010 and more recently have expanded with a second location in Gibraltar, which is in Europe. Since inception, at the time of recording this, December 2016, Prihoma's Cloney Fund has returned a little over 220%. The fund has had no losing years. Worst losing month was minus 6.4%. Best month was plus 11.8% and the fund makes positive returns 77.8% of months. From listening to our chat, you'll get great insight to how Brendan runs his operation, from getting investors to buy in, to controlling risk and minimizing the volatility of returns, and how the fund makes money trading sports games. Naturally, there are many crossovers to financial markets, which you'll pick up on. I had a great time speaking with Brendan, and I hope you'll enjoy listening. Now, just a small announcement before we get to the meat of this episode. So I've recently struck up a bit of a deal with Edgewonk for Chat With Traders listeners. Now, I'm sure many are already aware of Edgewonk, but if not, the simplest way of putting it is Edgewonk is a journaling tool built specifically for traders. And I know I don't need to emphasize just how important journaling is, as it's something we discuss frequently on this podcast. But the cool thing with Edgewonk is it takes your journaling entries and trades and shows you metrics for how you're performing and areas that you can improve on. Ultimately, Edgewonk helps you to discover your edge. It's got a lot of awesome features. Visit edgewonk.com, that's E-D-G-E, Edgewonk, W-O-N-K, edgewonk.com and enter traders during checkout to score $20 off any package. For full transparency, I do receive a small kickback for anyone who purchases using the coupon code TRADERS, but the price is not inflated in order for me to be compensated. Like I mentioned, it'll actually save you 20 bucks. And I'm done. I'm Aaron Firefield, your host. Please welcome my guest, Brendan Poots. Sounds like you've had a, a pretty hectic week. Yeah, well, this is uh, one of the big things we trade on is the English Premier League and the European football. Okay. And this week, this week they've got three full rounds. So they had a full round on Saturday, Sunday. They had a full round on Wednesday, Thursday, and they've got a full round this Saturday, Sunday. So there's been 30 matches we've had to go through and do our work with, so it's been quite hectic. And then when you throw in the cricket, which is going on at the moment, that's our other big sport. Yeah, it's been a big week. 
Okay. And Christmas is coming up. So what are you doing? Are you shutting down over Christmas? No, no. That's historically our busiest time because you could imagine the same happens with the football, for instance. You'll have games on Christmas Eve. Then you'll have another round on just Boxing Day and the next day, and then you've got another round on New Year's Day. So you've got another three sets of games in the space of 10 days. And then you've got – whenever there's these public holidays, um, like Easter and Christmas, that happens to be when there's a lot of sport. So subsequently, I tend to take my, – my family's in Perth, mum and dad and brother, so I'll probably head back there early in the new year when there's a little bit of a lull. Yeah, and when you get these big games happening around public holidays, does that bring more opportunity to to make more money during those times or not so much? Yes, no, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, There's so much more money that's been traded that obviously one of the keys to our success so far has been making sure that our trade size per match is – proportionate to the total volume that will be traded on the match. So you don't want to be – effectively, you don't want to be putting a really big bet on a, on a match where there's not a lot of liquidity because effectively you're betting against yourself. Whereas when you have these really big matches, there's so much liquidity that it doesn't matter. if Because basically if you have – if we have a big trade and it goes wrong, we need to be able to get out. So you want you only so you want to be trading an, an amount which the market will be will tolerate and will let you get out if things go wrong, which is why we don't do it. To give you an example, the, an English Premier League match, a typical English Premier League match will have somewhere between ten and twenty million dollars traded on the platforms that we use. Those same platforms in an AFL match will have three hundred thousand. So if you have a if you have a twenty thousand dollar bet in an AFL match, you're effectively almost ten percent of the pool, and then you can't get out. So the bigger match, yeah. So we we tend to focus on the most liquid sports because a we think we've got an edge there, and b it allows us to stake accordingly. Okay. So this might be a bit of a strange question. I mean, me personally, I've never put a bet on a sports game in my life. So forgive me if this is kind of a weird question to ask, but how does it work? Because I always was sort of under the impression that the bookmaker says, we've got this game, these are the payout odds for if this team wins or whatever the situation is, that's how much you make. Otherwise you lose your bet. But you're like talking about this as though it's kind of like a an active marketplace where, you know, there's liquidity issues and that sort of thing. Like, how does that work? Are you betting on a different sort of, I don't know if exchange is the right word, but a different kind of platform than what retail people are playing on? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, there is. There are, there are a few different global exchanges. So they work in global sports betting exchanges and they work exactly the same as a typical stock market exchange, which is buyers and sellers meet, and they facilitate that meeting. But the big difference, um, and this is what has allowed our business to grow and and develop, um, is the advent of in-play sports betting. So whereas previously, and we're talking probably 15 to 20 years ago, sports betting used to be a binary outcome. And you're exactly right in the way you described it. You used to put a bet on and then you'd have to wait to the end of the match for the result and you'd either win or you lose. But with the advent of in-play betting, what happens now is that as soon as the match starts, you can still bet. And as a result of that, say for instance, you've got a bet on on a team it's let's say it's two dollars each of two teams you'd never get that for the bookmakers because they have their their commission in there but say you've bet on a on a on a team at two dollars and it's a binary outcome so it's a win-lose match so the draw's not in there like it is in football so say it's a rugby league or an afl match uh, and your side goes to 20 points in front say so then the odds will have changed. So the side that's now 20 points in front, their $2 will now be $1.40 
and the side that was that's now twenty points behind will have gone from a um, dollar uh, from from two dollars to three three dollars forty or something like that. So you now you the market started at two dollars two dollars. Now the market's at one dollar forty three dollars forty or something like that. So what you can do, you can now bet on the other side at three dollars forty a certain amount of your money to cover up. So then you've got no matter who win, who wins the match, you'll make a profit. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. So just backtracking a little bit, do you still have the option to play or to bet on a in-play game and as well as bet for like a binary outcome? Yes, you do. And what we do, we, we'll have an opening position, which will be pre-match. So typically what will happen is – a matches on the weekend, for instance, the soccer in England, those markets will have already come up. So you could the market's there now and you can have a bet. And what tends to happen is the early, the early markets are somewhat inefficient, but as you get towards kickoff, that's when all the money comes in and the markets sort of even themselves out a little bit. So if we look at a game today and we think that the market's wrong, we'll have a position, we'll take a position today. But then once that match starts on the Saturday night, 48 hours' time, we will monitor that position and we will trade that position depending on how the match goes. So if our side that we think we've taken the initial position on goes way in front, we will then back the other side to close out a profit and hedge our position. If it's the other way around, we will then hedge out so we mitigate our loss. So it's no longer a – it's a no longer – you win or you lose outcome. It's now you can win or you could you could you can win or you don't lose as much. So, for instance, a, a bad trade for us now would typically be a twenty or a thirty percent loss of our initial investment, whereas previously it would have been a hundred percent. So, in that instance, what's happened? We've made it. We've made a bet on a side. They've gone behind. They've gone further behind. Okay, what do we do? We need to start hedging our position by either backing the opposition or betting into other markets so we mitigate our loss. Well, we're going to get into this much deeper, but before we go too much further, do you want to fill us in on your background prior to founding the Prohoma Group? Okay, well, I'm Irish by background. Okay, um, so one of the one of the golden rules of being an Irishman is that you love to have a bet. So I was brought up in an environment where having a bet was your typical. The typical Saturday morning was spent with my dad and my brothers over the kitchen table looking at the form guide. So I'd been exposed to the joys of punting from a very young age. Now, through uh, school and university, I used to have a bet and, and what have you. And then at the end of my university degree, which was a degree in chemical engineering, I chose to pursue a professional sporting career. I was a cricketer, and so I went over to England to play county cricket for Sussex. Now, my benefactor, the guy that sponsored me, who, who got me the club side and provided me with the house and the car and all the things that go with it. He was a bookmaker and he had two shops um, in Surrey in the south of south of London there. And I was playing cricket by day and then with the long nights I'd go work in one of his shops and and be a bookmaker at night. So it was a that was my first entree, I guess, into the professional side of of sports betting, for want of a better term. Well, horse race betting and sports betting, because back then sports betting wasn't so big in in Australia, but it was certainly big in England. So fast forward four years when I'd realized I was not going to cut the mustard as a cricketer, I then went and worked in uh, worked in investment banking, finance, venture capital type industries where I was analyzing, I was looking for value, trying to find a share. If we valued a share at two dollars, but it was trading in the market at a dollar, then that's a buy. And I thought, okay, that, that makes sense. That's interesting. But one of the things that was the downside of that is it's it's very slow moving. You don't tend to buy a share at a dollar and then an hour later it's $3. It might be six months later or a year later. So then in 2006, I was very fortunate to earn a scholarship to complete my MBA studies at Columbia University in New York. 
and that was 2007 was when I went. And then obviously in 2008, there was the financial crisis. So your typical Columbia MBA graduate would pursue a career in consulting or with one of the major banks, being a trader or investment banker, one of those areas. But all those jobs had dried up. And having already worked in those industries, I didn't want to go in as a 32-year-old, 33-year-old lackey. So what I decided to do was I thought, where would I want my money during the financial crisis? I thought, well, I'd want some, I want to have my own personal money somewhere which is liquid, somewhere which is non-correlated, um, and somewhere where I really knew what was going on. Um, obviously, the global financial crisis was catalyzed by ratings agencies, um, manufacturing ratings of, of the mortgage-backed securities and a lot of other nefarious-type activities. So I said, well, I know sport. Betfair, I understand that it's growing. There's a Betfair global exchange. So how about I apply those principles that I've been educated and then previously I professionally used in the in the realm of sports betting or trading or investing, depending on how you want to term it. So in 2008, 2009, I started with my own money and I started building my own very antiquated algorithms and fairly much focused on um, – a little bit of horse racing, but predominantly cricket and football or soccer. And then in 2010, I decided, well, I've done this now for a couple of years. I've got decent returns. I started speaking to some friends about it, and they said, yeah, we'd give you some money. So in 2010, Prioma Capital was formed as a sports hedge fund, and that's the origin of where we where we started, how we started, and since then, your typical client for us now has gone from being a friend who would give me ten or twenty thousand dollars to now people who we have never met giving us a couple of hundred thousand dollars, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars to manage. So that is the origin of how we started and where we've got to today. Okay, so you started the fund in two thousand and ten, yeah? Officially, yes. That's when it was registered as a business. I started it I was trading my own money and and figuring out the strategies in two thousand eight, two thousand and nine, but I started taking external investors money in 2010. Okay. And you know, you, you mentioned earlier that you'd been kind of placing bets all throughout your, uh, even your childhood, uh, and then throughout your schooling days and that sort of thing. During that time, were you just having a punt or were you actually being somewhat strategic about your betting? Okay. It started as a punt, but then it morphed very quickly into a strategic way of, of betting or trading. And effectively, I was from, from the periods of about the age of 26 when I finished my cricketing career or basically gave up the dream of playing professionally. For the next four years, my goal was to pay my rent every month with winnings from betting on sport. So that's when it became quite strategic. Okay. And were you able to achieve that goal? I was, yes. And that was, um, yeah, that was what sort of lit the fire underneath me for then because after that was when I went over to university in America and I'd, I'd paid, I pretty much paid for my university degree. Um, the scholarship paid for the tuition and the accommodation, but certainly the running costs of living in New York had to be paid somehow. And I pretty much paid them uh, via gambling or betting or investing on sport, depending on how you look at it. Yeah, so that was what gave me the confidence to, to say, okay, this can be done. If you approach it in a, in a methodical manner, um, one of the tricks, and certainly when I interview people for any positions within our firm, one of the, the disciplines that is definitely required is with sport, there's always another race, there's always another match. It's coming at you thick and fast. So you need to really be able to, outline a strategy and then cherry pick your matches or your races to play in because you can quite easily get yourself dug into a hole because there is just so much coming at you. Yeah. So starting the fund, were there any regulation issues, any hoops that you had to jump through to do this? Because I mean, I think sports betting hedge funds are pretty few and far between. Did you have to do any like was there any additional challenges than what there is to normally uh, managing money? Well, yes, there is. And 
that takes us to where we where we are now in terms of our offshore office in 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 Gibraltar. But certainly, starting off, you have to. The Australian fund operates as a, a small scale private fund, which is limited to the number of investors, and that is one of the ASIC rules. So we you're limited to the number of investors, retail, I guess, who are, who invest less than five hundred thousand um, dollars. So that limits you. So as long as you stay below that threshold, you can operate as a as a private uh, small fund, which is what we've been doing. But clearly, that's how we started, and it was obviously the the lowest risk, lowest cost way. But given the success that we've had, we've just now. Um, registered a Gibraltar fund and a Gibraltar company, and that is a fully regulated vehicle under the AIFMD, which is the Alternative Investment Funds Management Directive, Directory or Directive, I think, in in Europe. So the, the restraints you have in Australia are very much around the number of investors you have, as well as the number of funds you have, whereas now we've been able to parlay our success into a European fund, which allows effectively unlimited growth. Right. Okay. Sure. Now, I think you may have already answered this to some extent, but you know, just so we're we're very clear on this, why did you decide to open a sports betting hedge fund rather than a fund that trades financial markets? Like you 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 brought up uh, previously that you had some experience in financial markets, also. Well, the real catalyst was. The global financial crisis um, in 2007, 2008 there, where basically it didn't matter whether you owned luxury cars, property, stocks, bonds, shares, they all were fairly much adversely affected by the, the global financial crisis. So the dream for a lot of investors, be it professional investors managing money or people who are investing money, is to find an uncorrelated asset class, one which is fairly much immune to every other asset class. And that was what drew me to sport because during that financial crisis, all the major sporting events kept being played. There was millions and millions of dollars being traded or bet on those sporting contests. So to me, that was the ultimate uncorrelated asset class. Couple that with the fact that having spent countless hours looking through information memorandums and annual reports and spreadsheets on financial markets and, and businesses. My, I was never going to be the best at that. Um, I was competing against, you can always competing against a lot of very smart people who love that sort of thing and not loving it was always going to be my problem. I'd worked, I'd done, I'd done the, the periods of 16 hour days, 17 hour days and Quite frankly, I was I was not very good at it. I was um, I lacked the passion and I lacked the motivation to do it. So, I guess combining the fact that I'd identified a non-correlated asset class and it was also in an area which I actually loved and an area where I could spend sixteen hours a day doing it and not feeling like it was work. That was why the sports hedge fund started. And the other thing about it was that. I like the fact that I could be sort of pioneering something which no one had ever done. I've had, I've got a, a an obstinate part of me which was, you know, proving people wrong and things like that. And along the way, we've had lots of criticism, and I've had lots of personal criticism about what I've been doing. But that sort of spurs me on more than anything. So, rather than being lost in a corporate and being well paid to be unhappy in a corporate, I thought, well, let's start something new, and let's be happy probably earning less, but building something. And that's that's sort of where that's where it all started. And look, it's now it's now an international business with international investors and it's sort of getting close to being where I would have been anyway, have I been working with a firm, but I'm doing it on my own back. And that's that's quite rewarding. No, I love that answer. And I just want to pick up on your point about sports betting being uncorrelated to uh, financial markets. This might be a bit of a stretch, but is there any flow-on effect? Because I would presume that if we had another event like 2008, the GFC, there would be people would have less disposable income. They'd be less likely to put some money on a sports race. Would that have any effect on you and what you're doing? 
Yes, potentially, but ultimately I think betting on sport, cheering on your sports team, it's a little bit like people who smoke or have a drink in that it doesn't really matter what's happening in in the world. If you haven't got enough money, you'll still go find a beer or you'll still go buy a packet of smokes because that's what you do and it's part of your it's part of your makeup. So I would suggest no in in the overall scheme of things. Um what we've seen is that there has not been many down like there hasn't been a lot of downturn. The business of sports betting has grown between three, five, seven percent in some markets consistently over the last ten or fifteen years and there hasn't been a downturn based on based on global economics because people still like having a bet and people still will follow their sporting team. And maybe the contrary might be true in that when life's really bad, you actually try and make more money and you try and have a bit of a drink and you try and cheer on your sports team even more when things aren't looking good. So I and I hear your point and there might be some there might be some um negative impact but certainly we haven't seen it and it's and we're not big enough for it to have made an impact on us certainly yeah okay and just on a side note there do you ever have trouble betting on a team that you would normally chair for like betting against a team that you would normally chair for there is that all that 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 pops up every now and then but i've and this is some people call it a personality flaw I think it's a personality strength is that I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing my love of anything with the pragmatism that I'm required. So ultimately, no. Um, I'm driven by the numbers and the opportunity more than than anything else. Um, I'm not the sort of fan who will be seen wearing a replica T-shirt or wearing a scarf or something like that. So I'm not – too heavily invested emotionally in any any team, despite having my favorites, of course. Okay. <laughs> you've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. They started at the beginning, reimagining the bond screener with an intuitive design that helps you zero in on the exact kinds of bonds you're looking for. Then they made it easier to evaluate each investment opportunity with better data in the places you need it most. Finally, they made investing in bonds as straightforward as stocks or any other asset. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. So you brought up earlier the fact that you did cop quite a bit of criticism uh, for doing what you're doing, starting one of the very first um, sports betting hedge funds. Was it difficult for you to get investors, like um, get investors to buy into what you were doing? Um, you know, because there is this kind of negative connotation around sports betting uh, with most people anyway. I think most people who actually listen to this podcast will understand that there's um, a way that you can go about it in somewhat of a professional manner. But um, was was it difficult to get in, uh, investors to buy into what you were doing? Well, certainly part of the problem with 
Look, the short answer is yes. Um, early on when I've got friends who are getting involved, they knew me, they trusted me. Some of the, some of the early investors that we took on board, we had to capital guarantee their investment, basically um, saying, look, you're not going to lose your money, etc. At the at worst, you'll get your money back. Um, the hardest thing, and this is why the European adventure is of great appeal to us, was the educating of potential investors with respect to it's no sport is no longer a binary outcome. You can be a punter or a better, you can be a bookmaker, or you can be a combination of both. So in Australia, whilst Betfair is a, a burgeoning business and um, matchbook, etc., betting in play, being able to trade, being able to hedge, people, most people don't understand that as a way of trading or betting on sport. And typically most of our investors are not the young, not 18 to 25-year-old guys or girls who have grown up with that environment. They tend to be the people who have accumulated a deal of wealth, so they're a little bit older. So they're used to just having going to the TAB or going to a bookmaker, having a bet and either winning or losing. So the hardest thing has been the educating. And then the second thing which we've really focused on um, has been the reduction in the volatility of our returns because a lot of people, you hear stories about, oh, you won 100 bucks and you lost 100 bucks, you won 80 bucks, you lost 80 bucks. We've taken all the volatility out of our out of our trading. So a bad month for us will be a minus 1% month. A good month will be a plus 4% month type thing. Used to be a lot higher and lower respectively, but now we've taken the volatility out of it. So people now see that it can be done. And that's been so the hardest the hardest thing at the start was educating as well as trying to talk to people and and, and alleviate any concerns they had about the potential risk profile of the returns. Okay. Yeah, it's an interesting point you bring up and it's I've, I've spoken to a few um, like fund managers on this podcast and that educating their investors is something that has come up a couple times as being uh, a big part of the challenge in managing other people's money. Um, so let's talk about this a little more, uh, especially because you were offering a capital guarantee uh, in those early days. You know, that's a pretty big um, commitment from your side. How were you able to manage risk and how or how are you able to manage risk and how do you control the volatility of your returns? Like what sort of things do you do? Right. Well, the first, the, the first thing is we're very – we cherry pick the trades that we make. So a good – let's talk Premier League football. There's 10 matches every round. There's win-draw-loss markets. There's over-under markets. Um, there are a multitude of, of different markets that that we have information on and we can trade on. But we only ever trade where we've um, got a, a clear premium compared to the market. So that – by definition, narrows down a lot of your a, a lot of your opportunities. So, on a typical EPL weekend, we might only have three or four trades out of ten matches and maybe fifty or sixty markets. So that's the first thing we do is we only ever we only ever make a trade where there's where there's value. The second thing we do in terms of the volatility side of things is that, as I mentioned earlier about the in play trading and that what that allows in terms of capability we would rarely run an event to expiry without trading out so pretty much about 95 to 97 percent of all of our trades are hedged so what that means a good example would be as i touched on earlier if you've got a football team and it's in a three-way contest and they start at two dollars and they score and they go to a dollar thirty or a dollar forty. We will then take opposing positions in that match, so that we've just locked in a profit straight away, and then we move on. The only instance where we wouldn't do that would be if they scored two or three goals very quickly, and they were well in front. And then we, whilst we wouldn't trade out, we'd still monitor that match, so that if the other side started coming back or the statistics said they'd be coming back, we'd start hedging out. But we, we're very selective and we cherry pick the trades we make and every trade we make, plus or minus, you know, one or two percent, we always look to exit 
So a typical trade for us will be a 15-minute or a 20-minute trade. We don't trade to expiry. We're never sitting there in the, the 90th minute of a football match hoping for a goal or hoping for a penalty or something like that because we're long gone by then. Okay, so just so I understand that right, you're in most cases you're out of the trade or the bet before expiry. Correct. Is that because you just want to lock in your profit as soon as possible and move on or is there a little bit more to it than that? Well, it's a combination. Um, there's certainly the psychological aspect of it, which is to take your take your profit and run. Um, the other one is the data that we've built up through the algorithms and the statistical database. Um, to give you an example of in football, if a side scores and they go to a dollar forty immediately, they're going to hover around a dollar forty for the next twenty five thirty minutes, depending on how the event's unfolding. So effectively, you've got risk sitting there, and you could but you've got thirty minutes. You've got thirty minutes of risk with very little reward because the market's not going in your favour. It will just keep ticking around the same spot. So it's a combination of the psychological love, I guess, of taking your profit and running, but also of the risk return of, of staying in a position longer than you need to. And that's, and that's, that's probably the, the main drivers. And while we're talking about risk here, you know, besides taking a loss on a bet, are there any other risks inherent to sports betting? Uh, maybe along the lines of like a bookmaker going out of business, government regulations, um, injury of a player, uh, any other risks like that? There are. I would say that all of our service providers, which uh, are all very large regulated betting exchanges or bookmakers, so we're not dealing with um, small guys. We're dealing with people who we've got agreements in place who will accept our bets, will accept our volume, um, and are they're registered, regulated they're highly scrutinized because they're generally listed. Most of them are listed bookmakers. So counterparty risk is, it's never, it's never non-existent, but I suspect it's, it's fairly low. Government regulations, well, that's obviously a pain in the, pain in the backside in Australia um, because of the fact that they don't allow in-play betting. They only allow it via phone, whereas if you're in Europe, um, you can be betting on, the, on, on your computer and just betting in play without having to be on the phone. So those sorts of things, uh, like we've got around that by having a, the office in Europe so we can execute our trades um, much more quickly. Now, injury to player, that's um, one of the things that we like about sports is that we find that it's much more transparent in terms of the information dissemination than certainly some other markets. So a lot of the – you only have to pick up the sporting pages and it's all over the pages whether there's a, um injury or whether there's injury clouds about people. So a lot of that information is out there. So most times we'll have taken that into account in terms of our pre-match tra uh, trading analysis and pricing. Now, if one of those events happens in play, what we tend to find is that the market reaction to a player being injured is is rather is, is, is over exaggerated. Um, to give you an idea of basketball, we don't touch, but basketball, for instance, your main player is going to be touching the ball almost every every play, so that can make a big impact. But if you look at football, as in soccer, for instance, losing a star player in the big sides, they're generally replaced by another star player. So the incremental uh, degradation in performance expectation is not as great as one would imagine. So, yes, injured players, uh, players injured, they can affect things, but um, it certainly doesn't lead to a catastrophic loss. So, if someone gets injured, the market doesn't turn completely on its head. So, if you do get worried, you could then close that trade if you want. But what we've tended to find is that injured injuries to players tend to represent a market opportunity because the market overreacts. And are there any other Risks, which I may not have mentioned there, anything that comes to mind? Well, there's always the risk that we, we, we could lose all the money, like that goes with that goes of any investing investment fund. But in terms of external risks, um, not really. There's the major ones, um, I think, 
uh, the counterparty risks, which we don't think are, are very, very large. Um, we've touched on the business and regulatory risks. Um, if you're if you're an investor in one of our certainly our Australian fund, there'd be the exchange rate risk because of the fact that the the Australian fund is domiciled in Aussie dollar, the European fund is domiciled in British pound. So there's those exchange rate risks, but certainly there's no there's no market shock, and that's one of the things that um, when we talk about one of the differences between our asset class and the traditional asset classes, it's fairly it's immune to market shocks. And if you look at what's happened over the last couple of years with the Brexit, the way the market reacted to that, the financial markets reacted to that. If you look at when there was the Greek the Greek default with the IMF, the market reacted to that. Um, when the Swiss franc was uh, depegged against the euro, there was a lot of market shocks there, and there was a lot of businesses which were highly leveraged, which went under because of that shock and that that no one anticipating that event. So, in that sense, there are no external risks which can violently upset the apple cart. Mm. Okay, no, that's a, that's an awesome answer. Now. How important is an understanding of the sport compared to just weighing up the probabilities and payout odds? I mean, maybe if we can just get into the strategy a little more. So, yeah, tell us a bit about that. Well, it's essential when it comes to our algorithm development. Now, what we've been very prudent with doing, and this has come as a false start from a previous bad experience, is that Grabbing a smart mathematician or a smart statistician is not enough. You need to grab one who has domain knowledge of the sport itself so that they can model and they can incorporate the nuances that pertain to each sport. Subsequently, at this point in time, that's why we tend to focus on only the three or four sports because we've only been able to identify three or four PhD quant guys who have got an innate understanding of each sport. Now, from the trading perspective, the numbers, I would, I would dare say that you don't have to know the sport to trade the numbers per se, but it helps. Obviously, um, one of the big things in, in any sport is momentum and momentum shifts. And if you're going to, to be trading a sport, you need to be able to understand and notice them and see them. So that's, that helps a lot. But certainly, it's an absolute prerequisite for our algorithm development that the analyst or the the developer in charge of each sport understands the sport innately. Okay. You said there that you focus on, I think it was three or four sports. Do you deliberately avoid other sports for any reason? Maybe you, you feel as though there's no edge in actually um, competing on those sports or is it purely just because a staffing limitation? Well, it's a combination of a lot of things. For instance, AFL here in Australia, we won't have a bet on AFL because you can't you can't trade the numbers. The numbers don't let you. Um, as I mentioned earlier, a good game in AFL might have half a million dollars traded on it. You compare that to ten or fifteen million dollars traded on a a, um, a Premier League match, or fifty to a hundred million dollars traded on a big bash cricket match. So there's there's the liquidity aspect of betting on a sport. Because that's all very well getting set, but if the game goes the wrong way, you can't hedge your position. So there's a liquidity aspect, there's the innate understanding aspect, um, which is driven by a lack of quants, like American sports we would love to get involved in, but we're yet to find um, any analyst quant who understands the sport to the level we need. We can watch a sport if a quarterback gets injured we know that affects the game, but how much does it affect the game? We can't quantify. Whereas certainly with the other sports, we can because a lot of our modelling is, is is underpinned by player ratings. We know what a player means to a team, whereas we don't in a lot of the sports. We well, all the sports we don't um, we don't trade. So it's born out of liquidity and it's born out of the the right manpower. We get a lot of CVs from people who. Uh, NFL experts or whatever they, they that's how they call themselves but none of them tend to stack up when we ask the questions that we ask 
So why is that they, they don't have the right qualifications or they don't understand the sport deep enough? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things. Partly is that what we've done what we've done here is we've separated the analysis and the trading side of things. So our analysts don't trade and our traders don't – they help with the analysis, but they certainly don't build the algorithms. They'll help with some input. So we've separated those two, those two functions within the business. Um, so a lot of the people that come to us, they're gamblers. Um, they don't – and this is the other thing about American sport is that because America has been effectively a binary sports betting nation since eternity, you either win or you lose – they don't actually have the concept of trading. So a lot of the American people or a lot of the people who tell us that they're specialists at America, they will um, be having binary bets, win and lose. And that brings with it long good runs and very long bad runs, which then takes our volatility up. So that's why we don't, we don't tend to find any – we haven't found anyone good that matches us as, as yet. Okay. So here you're talking about PhD quants. You're talking about statisticians – how much discretion do you use versus quantitative methods in regard to your bets? Okay. Um, well, first, certainly there's the typical work week, for instance, is say we've got a weekend round of sport coming up. We'll have all the data and all the – we'll have our prices by Tuesday or Wednesday morning. And then there's a discussion amongst the team about, all right, what's happening you know, there's, there's a big match this weekend, for instance, Liverpool versus Everton in the football. That's a Merseyside derby. Stay clear of that because there are so many qualitative factors in a Merseyside derby that that's impossible to bet on. You know, they, they, these two sides hate each other. They've hated each other for hundreds of years, etc. So that aspect comes into the before in the in the previews during the week of what's been happening. Are there any external factors we need to take into account, how will that affect our price? And most of the time when there's an external factor like that, even if there's perceived value in the market based on our output, we'll steer clear of, of that event purely because of the unknowns of, that, of those qualitative factors. Now, once, once a match is in play, that's where the trading becomes, I guess, 80% algorithmically driven and 20% trader-driven, market-driven. So there's probably a 20-80 split of the trading once the match goes in play. Okay. So would you describe the way that you guys bet on sports as a strategy? Is that the right sort of way to frame it? Yeah, absolutely. We, we have a couple of strategies which we – like market strategies where we bet in a certain way on a certain market and we just we just rep replicate that all the time. That's sort of our, our bread and butter trade. So that's definitely a strategy. And the way we approach it is a strategy as well. We, For us to get involved, we need at least a 25% premium on – so if, if, we've pri if we've priced something at, at $2, we need to be getting $2.50 in the market for us to, to, to be interested sort of thing. So yeah, there's a, it's, it's all underpinned by a, a robust strategy, which has been developed by trial and error back when I was playing with my own money, but has since been continuing to be optimized since, since the start of the fund. And do you guys do any work on actually validating those strategies before you start actually trading them? Yeah, absolutely. So the typical process of building an algorithm or building a, a sports data set there's a certain element of that which will be trialing, trialing the trading strategies which, which I I want to employ or we want to employ because it's quite a instead of I guess the process is all right. There's an opportunity in the golf market in this type of market which is it might be betting on the first round leader or it might be betting against the first round leader. There's a, we have a strategy, a hypothetical strategy. And then once we built the database, we then back test that strategy against all previous results. And then that gives us an idea of where we should be headed and what we can expect. So yeah, it's all driven by that. Yep. Okay. And is it fairly easy to come by data for sports betting? Very easy. Well, the data is a commodity. The data itself is if you wanted to if you wanted to build your own model 
on football or EPL or something, the, the data is the historical data is very easy to come by. So, and if you want to get live data as it happens, um, you can purchase that, uh, have that streamed straight into your, your your own system. So that's very easy. The, the data itself is a commodity. It's very easy to get. The trick is understanding and developing a system which recognizes data which means something and data which is purely noise. And there's a lot of no, there's a lot of noise. And in terms of possession, if you look at possession, historically possession used to be a in football soccer it used to be a a good determinant on who would win. Leicester managed to win the championship last year generally with 40% or less possession. So that's noise and that's the sort of stuff you need to be able to wade your way through. Yeah. So, I mean, it's much the same as uh, data for financial markets as well. Correct. How do you measure your performance as a fund? Like how do you measure how successful, how well you're doing? Um, Is there any way you measure this besides your bottom line? Um, Yeah, we measure it. A couple of things. Um, It used to purely be just Bottom line, you give $100 on January 1, $150 on December 31st, okay? We've had a 50% year. That used to be as simple as that. But as we've, as we've developed the business and as our investor has become more experienced, more sophisticated, there's been other metrics which we've had to incorporate into the business um, as a way of testing ourselves and volatility, number of negative months, um, obviously comparative returns to a couple of benchmarks have all come into it. So volatility is the big one. We've tried to, because it's a new asset class, because it's an asset class which may or may not be deemed an asset class by many investors um, and rightly or wrongly it might be perceived as being slightly more risky than others, we've tried to really take out the volatility of our of our returns. So as a result of that, that's one of the key metrics by which we now gauge our own performance is, is typically number of negative months. So that's probably the more, because obviously if the less negative months you have, you're going to end up getting a good return anyway. So that's that's been one of the big things we've been focusing on. Okay. How do you measure the volatility of your returns? Is there any um, method to that? Well, there's obviously there's the there's the mathematical methods, if you like, in terms of just your standard deviations and number of negative months, average number of negative months, and things like that. Um, and that tends to be quite rudimentary and basic in that sense. But certainly, when we talk drawdowns, we talk um, high watermarks, things like that. We know we know where we've been, so we know that. What our what our high points have been, and we know we don't want to drift too far below that. So, it's a combination of all those. There's no one metric which which drives it. It's effectively we know how how positive we've been. We know we don't want to get below a certain negative. So then we'll put we'll make sure that if we're heading if we're tracking that way halfway through a month, we'll then revisit the algorithms, we'll revisit the trading strategies, and we're doing that all the time. So it's an ongoing moving target driven by number of negative months more than anything. Now, this question here I'm really keen to ask you, (laughs) I'm not sure what you'll think of it, but you know, we hear stories about races being fixed and sort of shady business in the sports uh, betting field. Do you see anything like that? Is that something that still exists to this day? I would say yes is the answer to that. <laughs> the short answer to that would be yes. Okay. <laughs> and what sort of sports do these mostly happen in? Well, look, I think a lot of the it's great news. It's a great news story when someone someone talks about match fixing and and things like that. But I suspect what you'll find is and this is certainly our this is our experience is a lot of the match fixing a lot of the the spot fixing the, some of the nefarious activities if you're looking at tennis it's at the very lower levels of tennis where guys are scratching around for a living um, the top guys in the in the ATP and the grand slams they tend to be it would take a lot of money for them i would have thought to be persuaded to ruin a legacy similar to the similar to the football in Europe, I notice 
Luis Suarez this morning has just signed a new contract with Barcelona. And for someone to buy him out, they have to pay $250 million or something ridiculous like that. So the incentives are not there at the high levels of sport. They are there at the low levels of sport. Now, for us, the low levels don't really matter because we can't bet on those because the volumes are not big enough for us to trade anyway. So we tend to confine ourselves to the higher upper echelons at the highest level of sport where where um, prudence and the way it's the way it's managed and run is at its highest. So yes, for sure, there's always going to be there's always going to be someone trying to make a quid out of it, but it tends to be in the lower levels suburban levels through to the, the futures tours on the on the eight on the on the tennis tour which doesn't affect our business okay yeah so it's not something you've really got to worry about too much no and the other thing you need that you need to point out there is that as mentioned earlier 97 percent of our trades don't depend on the outcome of the match so we're immune to that as well so we're not sitting. We're not sitting there in the ninetieth minute, and the goalkeeper lets one go through the legs, and we've lost. We've traded for fifteen minutes in the first or second half. We've made our money. We're out. The actual result doesn't matter. Okay, got it. Yeah. All right, Brendan. Well, let's do one last question, and then we'll close this out. What suggestions would you have for someone who is interested in sports betting, and and someone who's actually serious about it, not just interested in having a punt? Any anything you'd like to pass on to them? Any final words? Yeah. Well, look. As much as as much as we bet on sport, we don't really bet on sport. If you understand that, we sport just happens to be the market is the market, and sport just happens to be the vehicle by which by which we um, that's the vehicle we use happens to be sport. But it's the same as any other market. In terms of sports betting, the the things that the, the, the three things you really need if you want to have fun out of it or you want to do what we do out of it, um, the first one is to understand that there's always another race or there's always another event. So you don't, you don't need to be betting every sport. You don't need to be betting every event. You want to bet on something you actually know and understand because this is one of the reasons why I got out of – the financial markets per se, um, was because if I'm buying a BHP share, that means someone's selling a BHP share. And if someone's selling it, they're probably going to know more than me. So I should be asking myself, why am I buying something someone smarter than me selling? So you want to be um, making sure that you bet or trade a sport you understand. You want to make sure that you're not being forced or you're not pressurizing yourself to have a bet because there's always another event. And the other thing is you got to, if you want to make money out of it, you probably got to do it in a very boring fashion. And a typical example for us is our maximum trade is generally, it's, it's up to 3% of funds under management, but it's typically only one or one and a half percent. So we're not having a hundred, typically if you got a hundred dollars, we're not having $50 on an event. We'd be having two or $3 on an event. So the money management side of it is, is very important because, because you've always got another event coming up. You want to make sure you've, you've got money to bet on that event. If that event fits your, fits your criteria. So yeah, we approach it in a very boring fashion. So it's probably not going to inspire anyone to want to get involved. <laughs> no, I think uh, that's what you've got to do to make money. Uh, over the long haul, anyway. Well, slow and steady, and that's how we've, you know, we people, and this is one of the things that, <clears throat> when we speak to people who are interested, they tell us how they've hit these, you know, they've hit these hot streaks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and these tend to be Americans looking for jobs or people who specialise in American sports. And typically, what we look at, we don't look to hit the home run. We look to get the first base, and we try and get the first base all the time. And if you do that, you've end up waking up at the end of the month, and you've had a good month. The home run is nice, but the home run is also hard to find. Yeah, and just to clarify, you you mentioned um, in your answer there that uh, you often risk two to three percent of uh, your your capital, your assets under management on a on a trade. But you also mentioned earlier in the interview that um, you often only lose twenty to thirty percent of that two or three percent is that correct correct that's right yes not 20 to 30 percent of the whole fund no <laughs> that would be scary 
That would be scary. Yeah. All right, Brandon. Well, let's leave it at that. It's been really good speaking. Thanks a million for coming on. Where can listeners go to find out more about you? Well, Prioma, www.prioma.com. That's P-R-I-O-M-H for Harry, A for Australia.com. That's our our website that has all the information about both our Australian fund as well as our international fund. So if people are interested from an investment perspective, you can drop us a line. If people are interested from a work perspective, we're always recruiting. It's um, one of the things we try and do is recruit good people. So we're always interested in hearing from good people. Excellent. And are you on Twitter also, Brandon? Yes, we are at Prioma. Okay. And Skype, and we're we're everywhere. We're ubiquitous. (laughs) Excellent. Well, of course, as per usual, include all those links in the show notes at chatwithtraders.com. Brendan, again, thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate it. Aaron, pleasure. Thank you. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.